Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. Today I'm with Anil Valarupali, who is the CFO at Airbase. Anil is a really interesting character. He's made CFO in quite a major organization in his early 30s. He's pushing ahead with a, a product that is certainly revolutionizing the way we do some things in finance. So I'm thoroughly looking forward to this conversation. Anil, welcome to the Grow CFO show. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to digging in. Anil, tell us a little bit about yourself. A little bit about myself. So I'll keep this as brief as possible. I started out my career in investment banking, like many other folks in finance. And after a few years of that, I realized that I really wanted to learn much more and get deeper in operating a business itself. And so I spent a few years doing M&A transaction banking, specifically for technology companies and even more specifically for software businesses. So naturally, my move was to start to work within a company called Guidewire Software that we were advising. And I wanted to, to go work within that business, doing anything I could within finance. So I joined Guidewire and, and there I started the corporate development and strategic finance team. And I joined Guidewire, I think a two, three, four weeks after the company had gone public and we had helped them through that process. So spent about five years there growing that company from about 500 to call it 2,500, 3,000 employees and through five or so acquisitions and looking at hundreds of companies to purchase. And the cool thing about that opportunity was that I was able to touch many different areas. And so my CEO, Marcus Rue and COO Priscilla Hung said, you know what, I'd like you to start the Corp Dev team, but that's not where it stops. I'd like you to touch strategic finance, long range plan for the company, also work on pricing and global sales operations and whatnot. And so it's a great, great fit for the company to be able to take my M&A experience and then me be able to take the operations experience from the company. And so spent a few years doing that and then went to a smaller company called Box and Mapbox was doing, called a secure mapping API platform that was competing with the Google Maps and the Bings and the Apple Maps of the world, but in a way that was not reselling data on the back end. So developers really trusted Mapbox. And that company grew pretty phenomenally while I was there. Went from about 130 to about 600 employees in two, two years and scaled and raised a bunch of money there. And then I went again to a smaller business called Mattermost. And it was also an open source company, but secure collaboration. So think about Slack, but for the White House. Slack, but for the Department of Defense. Slack, but for the European Commission. So super secure chat where folks didn't want their secret sauce data and conversations out there on the, the broad web and in some open cloud. It was through those experiences, really, that I felt that I was not and my teams were not well served in the tools and software that we needed. And hence why I met Thejo, our CEO founder here at Airbase about five years ago. And I joined on board as CFO at Airbase about two and a half years ago. And I've been loving the ride ever since. Brilliant. So you've come up through a route that's from investment banking and very much mergers, acquisitions. You're not an accountant. I'm not an accountant. No, I appreciate all the aspects of what our phenomenal controller here, Kelly, does and all the great accountants out there do. And I understand a good amount of it, but I'm definitely not an accountant. Okay. Looking at that rise into CFO, do you think having the investment banking background has been an advantage over having a, a traditional accounting background? Yeah, it's different. If you look at a sales leader or a marketing leader or even a people leader for that matter, 
everyone has come up a different path, right? A sales leader could have come up the outside sales or the inside sale path. And the marketing leader could have come up the demand gen, lead gen side, or the PMM side, or the marketing operations side, or the brand side. And so I think it's a path, the investment banking path. For me, it worked well because it gave me a very strong foundation that was required in finance to understand what are the value drivers within a company. And for me to understand the surface level information about many companies, and that's no insult to bankers, but that's just what you have to do because you have to learn about a lot of companies. So you can only go as deep as possible. And I had a natural curiosity to figure out how a company ticks and like, how do we make an engine fire on all cylinders better or in more synchrony and understand problem solving? And so what I really like to do is I like to find problems and I like to help the company fix them. And that natural curiosity went well from going from investment banking, taking that foundation of the finance and et cetera foundation. And it's kind of what I call a physician going through their residency. And so that's what I believe the investment banking was for me. Brilliant. Brilliant. You arrived after that journey at Airbase, solving a problem that you'd wished you'd had in previous incarnations. Tell me a little bit about what Airbase do. Yeah. What Airbase does as a whole is we take all non-payroll spend occurring at a company. And so there's four ways companies spend money. One is your employees, so payroll. Two is your accounts payable and how you pay your vendors. Three is your expense reimbursements and how you reimburse your employees on the dollars they spent on company behalf. And four is these physical or virtual cards. But traditionally, back in the day, think about the physical card that's in your wallet. And so what we take is all that non-payroll side of spend, and we put that through our system, Airbase. And so we do that with four main modules that we sell. One is called guided procurement, which is the call, quote, intake product. And think about that as the product that's helping solve the chaos of spending at a company or the chaos of even getting to spend at a company. What that means is if you can imagine being a marketing employee at a company and you want to buy a software. If you go to buy that software within a company, you probably need to go to your manager for their approval. You probably need to go to FP&A to figure out if you have budget. You probably need to go to legal to review a contract. You probably have to go to InfoSec to review the data privacy rules of that vendor. Probably have to go to IT to figure out if there is not a duplicative system that's already doing this at the business. And so all of that chaos would generally, call it 10 years ago, happen through emails or Slack or phone calls or text messages to drive that alignment. And you're generally falling on the marketing person who's requesting spend. So Airbase brings all those workflows into our tool. And so for approvals to happen seamlessly and collaboration to occur. So the synchronous collaboration of spending dollars occurring in the platform through the approvals. Then underneath that intake product sits an AP automation module. So how you pay your vendors, how do you make sure there's approvals internally to actually route all those approvals to folks internally? And then also fundamentally at the back of it, do you want to pay them via AP ACH? Or do you want to pay them via a virtual card that you can set up with that vendor, a recurring virtual card? And then we do that with an employee expense management solution. And so how you reimburse employees. And as I mentioned, physical and virtual cards, we partnered with a pre-fund card. We're also partnered with American Express and Silicon Valley Bank to offer their physical cards native through our platform. That is what Airbase does. But for me, uniquely, you know, we call ourselves customer zero of our product because my team and myself are the ICP that we sell to. 
And so that makes my job a really fun one here at Airbase because not only are we doing the traditional things that any finance team are required to do, but we also take on a whole nother life of requirements such as money movement, risk, fraud, called analytics that is similar to other companies as well, business operations, et cetera. And on top of that, we get to spend a lot of time with a great product team and engineering teams. And certain amount of us as well in the finance team spend a lot of time with prospects to help sales reps and with existing customers to spend time with them. So it's a fun role. Yeah, I could see that. But you'd sit in there with the designer and say, this is what we'd like the product to do. They're bouncing ideas back to you. And who better to go and try and sell the product than the folk in your organization who are using the product? Yeah, we love it. And honestly, we wouldn't be here unless we believed in the product itself. We love the product and we're doing some great things for some awesome companies out there. And we're, we're very lucky and fortunate to be in that position. You've got a term, spend enlightenment. What do you mean by spend enlightenment? That is a term that was coined, I think, about a year and a half ago, a year and a half to two years ago here at Airbase. And what that term meant and what it's evolved to is call it all the procure to pay motions that are occurring within a company, but happening in a way that are seamless and in a way that are natural to your daily lives as an employee to a company. And I think what spend enlightenment really to me means is the idea that in the market that we operate in, which is called mid-market companies, early enterprise companies, that's like our focus. That's who we consistently sell to. For those businesses, you don't have 40 AP managers, accounts payable managers that can go force the company to comply with how we need to spend. And the tool that you provide into the mid-market early enterprise has to be providing two main verticals. One is the product needs to have the breadth and the depth required to capture all that non-payroll spend. The spend is not just happening in US and USD, it's happening in the UK through subsidiaries of a US of US headquarter company, maybe happening in Asia, APAC. And so how do you actually capture all those subsidiaries in the product and be able to send payments to 200 countries, 190 plus currencies, native FX and things happening within the product itself? So that's product breadth and depth. That's just needed. You have to have it for mid-market early enterprise companies because those companies, albeit are not 40,000 employee businesses, they are still operating with a certain level of financial complexity in their operations that our tool needs to be able to solve. So that is one vertical. The other part that I think ties well to spend alignment is the idea that you need to have a consumer grade UI UX attached to this type of product because we don't have 40 people, as I mentioned, in our AP teams to be able to go force compliance on the team. The product needs to work seamlessly, be easy to adopt, easy to use, as an example, be easy to submit an expense report by a person on the go-to-market team for which they don't feel like it's cumbersome. So it's a combination of product breadth and depth and a consumer-grade UI UX that ultimately deliver this term that was coined by Airbase a couple of years ago called the spend line. And of the finance team, you want to be, as you grow and recruit new members, you want to be recruiting people that can bring value to the business, that can bring financial in- interpretation and so on. You don't want to be recruiting people that process transactions. You want a system that can do that for you without or with the minimum of human interference. 
Yeah, we have a whole bunch of value metrics. We call them value metrics here at Airbase for each one of those modules that I describe that showcases why we're able to provide a certain level of hard dollar value savings as well as soft dollar value savings through the form of team efficiency and company efficiency. So in the process that I described to you around guided procurement, the intake product where I described to you a process that may have happened 10, 15 years ago with the emails and the conversations, the texts and the one-off things that are occurring that you can't track in disparate systems. That would traditionally take about 45 days to get an approval for the software from the marketing person. We're seeing now we've got procurement takes three business days. And so you're actually getting what you want as a company in a way that is creating less chaos and less time being spent on these areas, allowing the company to focus on what is truly there to grow revenue and keep revenue. And so that's in one example. The other pieces, as I mentioned, without an expense management software internally, it could take 30 to 45 business days for an employee to receive their reimbursement. With an expense management solution, we see value metrics that are bringing customers and employees their dollars back within three to five business days. Which is what you want. That money is left your bank account as an individual. Our job as a finance leader to get our employees their money back as fast as possible. And then we're able to... As I mentioned, when you're processing AP and invoices, you're able to attach virtual cards to that payment instead of having to go through the ACH traditional payment routes. And what does that mean? It's saving you time, number one, as a finance team, to process every payment, saving you time. But separately, it's also giving you hard dollar value savings to the form of cash back on every card swipe that you have or virtual card swipe. Your clearly in a very fast-growing fintech startup, more than a startup, but there's a very tough market out there and a lot of fintechs. Yeah. Thinking about 2024 and beyond, what do you think is going to happen in that marketplace? Do you think we can continue with so many fintechs? There seems to be a new one nearly every week. (laughs) (laughs) So two things to provide context. Number one, I was never afraid of of working at a company that, that's in a competitive space. At Mattermost, prior, as I mentioned, secure collaboration you're doing with Microsoft Teams and Slack and all these large legacy businesses. At Mapbox, which is the mapping company I described, we are competing against Google Maps and yep. Bing and all these large players that have billions of dollars. And so I think that for me, what cuts through the noise is having a very strong product and a target market that highly values that product. And at Airbase, we're fortunate to have that. And what that means is that we have a number one value internally here at the company that's called Control Your Own Destiny. That's our CEO founder has set that tone from Thejo has set that tone from his prior company as well that he founded and sold to SiriusXM. And um, the benefit of that, it means that we haven't been one of those companies that's had to raise money every six months. The last time we raised was two years ago, two and a half years ago. And we still have many years of runway. Point there is saying that what I see in 2024 to give that context is that we are in a competitive space. There are many competitive spaces right now, given the amount of funding that was deployed to fintech, broad fintech space in 2021, calendar year 2021. And then what that means is that a lot of companies are going to be coming up to raise in 2024. Unless you have those things that I've described, your grasp of what are the segments we play well in, how have we shown product market fit, and then a strong retaining customer base coupled with unit economics that makes sense, could be a hard 2024. 
It'd be a hard 2024 for you, especially in fintech. And we've been talking on this podcast and elsewhere all the way through 2023 that it's a tough market to raise money. It's yeah. perhaps the time you want to be going into the marketplace. So if, if you're in a position where you've got the runway to take you through, and it sounds like you're in a very fortunate position that you're not going to be going to the marketplace right. soon, then that's a great position. So I guess we can read into that that some companies are going to have to. And it's going to be tough. So we're going to see some sort of fallout coming forward. Yeah. Yeah, we will. And it's hard to predict, though. I could be very wrong. This time last year, being a company that moves billions of dollars on behalf of our customers a year, this time last year, all of the large U.S. banks that I spend time with, which are the most strategic bulge bracket banks, were all saying 80% chance of U.S. recession in calendar year 2023. We're about 25 days from that year being done. And while I would argue we've seen pockets of recessions, like in U.S. commercial real estate and some sub-segments and sectors, we have not seen this broader recession that 80% of the banks were saying was going to come through. And that the same is true in the U.K. and into Europe as well. The naysayers haven't successfully predicted the, the right level of doom. So it's hard to tell what's going to happen in 2024, especially here with the U.S. public markets. It feels like every four weeks there's like an opening and then a little bit of a closing and then an opening and a closing. And that, I think, is playing out in both the IPO market, the M&A market, and the private placement market. The only thing we can do as financial operator is assume the worst and plan for the worst so that when the market does turn, we're well positioned to ride the wave of that market. Absolutely. We're at the beginning of 2024, and the last couple of podcasts that I've put out, we've been talking about AI, what's happening, what we're expecting to see, and how things are changing very rapidly for the finance team. And can I ask you two questions on the first one? Airbase, are you building AI into your own solution? The first answer to that is yes, we are. And in a way that what the last 12 to 18 months of innovation have provided in the broader AI industry is the ability for companies like Airbase to have an AI strategy without having to invest 100 people to do it. That is the biggest advent. That is the biggest, call it, event that has occurred that I think we'll look back on 2022, 2023, call it 20 years from now and say, this is when the adoption of AI started to become ubiquitous. Similar to, we will look back to 2021, 2020, 2021, and say, that is when work from home became acceptable globally. <laughs> and so we come across these events in global history, we can point back to a time and say, that was the catalyst that drove it. Yes, Airbase has a strategy around AI. Our strategy around AI is really defined around how can we drive down friction and time for finance professionals within our customer base, as well as the employees that are using the product. So as you mentioned, you know, we talked about expense management and getting dollars back to employees fast. And behind that is having a tool that makes it easy to submit an expense report. What is it like to submit an expense report that required no touch by the employee? No touch, and all they have to click is submit. Yeah, that would be so, the system. These are the types of things we're building into the Airbase platform. When we talk about that, are tied to driving level of value within actions throughout the product. That's how AI plays a story at Airbase. AI is not the central theme at the company. It's like the woven fabric that'll run throughout the platform. 
Mm. So thinking AI again and thinking your finance team, how are you seeing AI impacting the things your team do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I think that number one, as I mentioned, Airbase, which is pretty much our team is a power user of our own tool, yeah. right? We eat our own dog food. We call ourselves customer zero. The tool is helping us in many ways. Where I'm excited to see where AI takes us in broader finance is what it can bring to FP&A and strategic mm-hmm. finance. I think that we don't yet have strong tools that are telling us based on data that is being processed, what can we do as a company 12 months from now or 24 months from now? Remember that I feel like IBM Watson used to have commercials 10 years ago, like during called a golf tournament. And suddenly an IBM Watson commercial would come up talking about we're connecting the data points in Philippines trading markets with an oil refinery closing in Belarus and like blah, 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 and all these things. That's effectively how we need to have AI helping the FP&A planning tool. Yeah. I'm excited to see where that goes in the coming 12 to 24 months. I think good things are going to happen there. But at this time, it's not clear how it's going to evolve. I think it's going to be very interesting to watch this space because we wind the clock back 12 months. ChatGPT had barely been released. I don't think last December anybody was particularly talking about it. But that conversation changed so rapidly. And we've got Microsoft coming up with products like Copilot. They're going to help immensely. We've got Power BI now being able to pull us data out that we can then use automation tools and just put it straight into other systems. We can analyze it. We can get programs written for us automatically. The change is going to be enormous going forward. I think we can start imagining it. Yeah. Completely. And and honestly, the ability to leverage AI at any one of your company is also reliant on having a good data strategy as a foundation. One of my biggest things that I've, the last three companies I've joined has been leading that data transformation strategy around what do we do with all the data inputs we have at our company, such as call it our product usage, our warehouse, our marketing systems, our Salesforce CRM automation, our NetSuite and billing or whatever you use for ERP. How can you bring all these tools together, homogenize the data to create a unique table for your entire customer base? that the rest of the company can dog food into their source systems. And ultimately, to have a strong data strategy means that if you have clean data, you can then analyze it and you can then run simulations on top of it. Yeah, And that's still the key. Clean data quality has to be spot on. You can have all the tools in the world you want, but if it's garbage in, it's garbage out. Right. Yeah. Anil, you've got quite an involvement outside of work in a big organization too, haven't you? Tell us a little bit about what you're doing in the healthcare space. Yeah, that's a great question. I haven't been asked that one on any finance podcast, but it's one that I'm passionate about. I have a a good number of physicians in my family growing up, and I would be remiss to say they probably would have wanted me to be a physician. (laughs) (laughs) It's no shocker that I'm close to many of the efforts that are happening in healthcare. I work closely with a foundation called St. Francis Foundation in San Francisco here. And what St. Francis Foundation does is it benefits what's this called the St. Francis Hospital, as well as the surrounding community, which is called the Tenderloin in San Francisco. 
So St. Francis Hospital has about a 70 to 80% non-paying patient payer mix, which means that the majority of folks that walk into the hospital can't pay their bill. So how can we get ahead of some of that? How can we help the community around it? How can we benefit the overall healthcare experience that these folks have at the hospital and the surrounding community? Jesus, probably spent close to eight, nine years on that board. And it's a hundred plus million dollar foundation for which I've been the treasurer for a while now and transitioned that treasurer role over to a strong CFO as well. And giving back has been always been a tone that my family has set. And mm-hmm. that's very important. And if there's a way that call it a nonprofit can benefit from my experience as a finance leader or an operator, then I'm happy to bring it to a space that I get passionate about and healthcare and, and helping people is one that does that. Now, I'm guessing that big CFO their base is pretty full on. How do you find time to do all that? <laughs> yeah, it is very full on. And I would say that it's difficult. <laughs> There's no beating around that bush. That's for sure. It's difficult. And it's one of those things where I have to segment the time. So it's not like I spend 200 hours a year on this foundation anymore. I once was spending that amount of time every year with it. I've now had to Take more of a backseat role, as I mentioned, transition that treasurer role over to another strong CFO who'd been a CFO of a public company before. I've also been able to hand off a good amount of the duties. And then now I'm just helping with fundraising. And I think that it's all a balance. Every finance leader, any finance professional goes through that period in time at any company where you go through the lulls and the peaks, the lulls and the peaks in terms of how much of your time is being pulled and pushed in different directions. And if there's ever a time where I feel like I can take a breath, I want to help out where I can. Yeah. Now, we touched very briefly when we talked about AI and technology. We talked about what had happened in 2020, 2021 around home working. What's the work culture? like an airbase how does all that work for you yeah it's a good question so my last two companies including airbase have been remote only and right. so prior to covid i was leading all of gna for a company like i mentioned called mattermost and that was in 30 plus countries so we had i was leading legal it gna people business operations etc for that business and i had never thought that i would be in a remote only company it was a big decision for me almost five years ago, five plus years ago, to make that leap from an office culture that I'd always been an office culture company to then transition to remote only. I took that very heavily. And so what that meant was I spent time with employees, CEO, VP legal at GitLab, now a public company. And Envision, the general counsel at Envision, the CFO at Automatic was great. And there was only a handful of companies that were doing remote only, remote first at scale at that time, five years ago. And it was actually, I would argue, frowned upon by VCs for a long time because there was no precedent for companies going public that remote only. And now, five years later, obviously, we've had a world-changing event occur, as well as companies that were at scale in that type of a business model that have gone public, making it more acceptable. I've been operating in this for a while, and that context, I think, is important because I think that when companies are founded, they're founded on culture and values and a way that then you run the company operationally that will mirror to those culture and values. Absolutely. Airbase, since company inception, Thedra founded this company with it being a remote first, remote only vision. You asked how it changes how we operate at Airbase. It changes everything. It changes the type of folks we hire in the recruiting process. It changes our operations and how we make decisions synchronously and asynchronously. 
It changes how much of a written culture we need to be internally here at A-Race, where things are written clearly. It changes how we define who are decision makers and who are not decision makers during a time of crisis. So I would say that it is a very strong way for smaller companies to punch above their weight when you can deploy a very strong remote-only business model, but it doesn't come without its trade-offs, right? Mm-hmm. And so with English pros and cons. So with that in remote-only, one of the things is getting folks together. So it's, Absolutely. Important, yeah. it's important to do that. And for every business strategy, there's a pro and a con. And there's very many pros at our stage of a business for remote-only. There are also cons as well. And the thing we can do is try and de-risk this. Yeah. So remote only means theoretically your team could be working, living anywhere yeah. else. What does that look like in practice? What sort of distribution have you got across your team members? Yeah, we are in what now? I think we're in 15 plus countries at Airbase. And we have a large number of our team in, in India for R&D. So product and engineering who are just awesome. Yep. I mean, these are probably some of the best product and engineering leaders and contributors that India has to offer. And we have a strong team that's supporting them too on the GNA side that's helping recruit and support and pay and all these things that are required there. So we have a very broad strategy with remote only. And yes, it gives us the ability to run, but it gives us the ability to number one, get the best talent in pockets of the world that 95% of the companies don't go to. So that it means it's a strategic advantage for us to punch above our weight. I would argue that Airbase would not be able to scale to the vendor we are today with the product depth and breadth that we have today, with the number of customers that we have today, without having them. We would have had a funds issue and a cash issue. And so the point is that it has allowed our company to be significantly more powerful, impactful, and efficient. You said that the, one of the major problems is communication and getting people together. So. Yeah. Thinking about you as CFO, how do you address that specifically with the the finance folk around you? Yeah, I think that one of the things I'm very clear on with my team is we always try and ruthlessly prioritize what are the top 10, 15 things we're working on in a given period, and even more so really top three or four that are truly strategic to the company. And the reason I do that is because that alignment to me is, is more important than the action of getting something done. That alignment to me is more important because if we can set the tone on what it means to focus and prioritize on our top three, four, five things, then we have to believe that we're hiring strong leaders and folks to push these initiatives forward. And we have done that, and my team has done that, and my team are strong. And so when we align on those priorities, I know that they can run with things asynchronously. There are a whole bunch of methods you can use to de-risk that someone goes from zero to completely finished and ends up with a finished product that is not what we wanted. I had a CEO of one of my companies who told me, look, I have a zero, 50, 80 done rule. And that means at zero, I want to align. At 50% done, I want to quickly check in and figure out how it's going. And at 80, I'd like to see what it takes to make the final push. And at done, I'm going to be one of your champions to get this thing as most successful as possible. That so, sounds like a really good way of making sure you've got the right result. I know right, so. one of the challenges for me, and I've come from very much a project background as a consultant. Now, you'd be fine senior consultants working remotely, folks that have done this before, got the t-shirt, just rely on those folks to get on with it and you'll get a result. But more junior people, 
where you're bringing them through and you're giving them things to do. They're learning on the job and kind of you're in the office next to them. You have a sixth sense, whether they're getting on with it, doing things all right, or they need some help. And of course, the tendency for somebody that needs some help is not necessary to ask for it, but you just know when to step in and do the right things. Now, for me, the biggest challenge of working remote has been not having that oversight and not being yep. there next to those much more junior folk in the team that you want to develop. How do you tackle that sort of problem? I think your qualitative feeling is aligns with what I've heard in some industries. So I know that when speaking with many folks in investment banking at Bulge Bracket Bank and even boutique investment banks, they've all had an issue with their year one, year two analysts that have come in since the COVID era. And so for me, I don't think I would be, I would definitely not have been having the base level of sufficiency had I not been working 90 to 100 hours a week in investment banking in an office. Because we're all learning from one another as analysts. And so that's what you're wondering. How do you make up for the learning by osmosis? Exactly. Occurs? Yeah, yeah. So that's the root question. And I think for us, one of the things I try and push, at least within my team, is that I read an article, I think it was like three, four years ago, that showed that if you can get a new hire to a material win by day 90, the first 90 days, we're talking about a win that they can actually communicate out to the company or out of the company externally, depending on the type of role, obviously, that there is a significantly higher statistical relevancy that new hire stays for two plus years and is successful. And so as a startup, we take a lot of time and effort to hire every single person. And their success is very much something we are invested in because we don't have thousands of employees for us to be able to fill the void. Quite quickly, where someone may have not worked out. So getting someone to success and fast is the number one goal. As I mentioned, day 90, by day 90, having a strong internal win that they can communicate also builds a sense that you've come and joined the startup and you control your own destiny. You can make of it and take from it what you will. And that's the type of people we hire for in this remote environment. And that's what I mean by it changes the type of people you hire. You need to hire self-starters. Yes. You need to hire folks who can be like the mouse and take the crumb of cheese and go to the next piece and the next piece and then find the honeypot of where all the cheese is. And that self-starter is one of those things we filter for when we're hiring. And so that is why I said there are certain personalities that would do well in remote and there are others that won't, but that would be fantastic hires at other companies. Control your own destiny. Those are certainly words that I'm going to be taking as the big takeaway from this conversation, Anil. And you've certainly controlled your own destiny, moving from investment banking through to CFO and working a very fast growing, really interesting organization such as Airbase. I can see it coming through as part of the Airbase culture. And I can certainly see how that is really important in your team in having those self-starters that can manage their own destiny. Anil, thank you. Thank you hugely for being this week's guest on the Grow CFO Show. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it.